Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme will take us from San Francisco to Brussels to hear about the power of branding. We catch up with an old friend, the founder of a purpose-driven studio that combines strategic thinking, design expertise and investment initiatives to empower brands. If we meet someone with a great idea that we can really help take their business to market and grow them, then, then we will. And we'll meet the co-founder of a Belgian merch company that aligns premium corporate gifts with company values to reinforce brand image and, hopefully, make a lasting impression. Every company on earth brands objects. There is really room for improvement and there is too much crap out there. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Regular listeners to the show will remember my first guest, John O'Holt, from his two previous appearances on the programme. He's the founder and CEO of creative agency Otherway, which works with prominent international brands and teams up with emerging ventures to help craft narratives and refine their offerings. Otherway's just celebrated its 10-year anniversary, and Jono stopped by Midori House to talk about his learnings from the past decade, what's new at the studio, and making the leap to expand into the United States. Here's Jono. I wanted to create a business that could help brands go from nothing to something. And so 10 years ago, we worked with a company called Cycle, the spinning studio, which is now a bit more of a boutique fitness proposition now. We did a a fee-plus equity deal, and we also, the second one we did was Moju, the shots and the juices, with Rich and Charlie. And those two were the first two pieces of business that we created. And, And we helped those founders, yeah, literally take their idea from PowerPoint slide into market. Fast forward 10 years, like, we still do that. We do it really at different scales now, I'd say. Like, there's a lot of big businesses wanting to launch new brands. So a lot of the people we work with are from what we would call the sort of more established companies globally. But equally, like, we just love working with entrepreneurs and founders. So we've grown over the 10 years and things change from our business model. But we've always sort of stayed true to the fact that if we meet someone with a great idea that we can really help take their business to market and grow them, then, then we will. And I wonder if you go back to those early conversations and those early successes, was it front of mind for you and your colleagues that you would draw in legacy brands, heritage companies that would say, hey, look, we also want a piece. And I wonder, was your, did you have even maybe in the back of mind then the idea that some of the principles that you work to could actually work for a very established brand? Or was that something that took you a little bit by surprise and you had to find ways to assimilate those new challenges into the mix? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely set out thinking we're just going to work with the most disruptive, challenging brands and founders and align with all of those people disrupting the category and and all of that stuff. I think what happened, and something like a Fortnum Mason, who we still work with, we had an amazing conversation with them in the early days, and they were saying, look, we've got this amazing product, but as a brand, you know, we're a little bit dusty. And I think it was like when Mars Chocolate had just launched and the packaging was just insane and everyone was loving it. And I think Fortnum's were like, well, we've got amazing chocolate. So how can we sort of engage with the similar types of people who are loving these new brands come through? So it's kind of happened gradually. But I think five years in, I guess like at half time for other way, we could very much see it happening. The Unilevers, the Heinekens, you know, and such like 
starting to really see the emergence of these new brands and really they just had admiration for them. I guess businesses like either buy them or they get inspired by them to do something similar. So yeah, we saw it coming through and I think fast forward again to what we're doing now. Yeah, increasingly those conversations are with those bigger companies who are wanting to behave in more interesting, agile ways and, and really being inspired by the brands coming through rather than the big direct competitors that they have. And what about the portfolio and the stable? Do you have a different mindset? I don't know if you're talking about your in-house brands, partners, established players. Do you have to kind of switch gears and modes in terms of your thinking about those? How you strategize about them? What the plans look like? What kinds of creative seems to try and mine? Or actually, is the challenge more the other way, which is to stick to your principles and, and those founding kind of ideas? How does that work as you look through your... Now, I mean, it's quite varied and, and mixed. It's a really interesting portfolio. Yeah, I think when you're working with founders, it's always personal. (laughs) They've got their money in it and it's a bold move and they're all in. So we've been lucky enough from the Moju to the the Cycle to the Button-Up Box was a good one for us. Lucky Saint has been brilliant with Luke. And so we've always had great relationships with founders at the beginning and we don't take that for granted. We understand that they are all in and, and it's super important. So that sets a culture that really gives you an accountability where you're like we really don't want to mess this up and you know a lot of the time we're taking equity deals or we're investing behind early stage as well so actually we're partners in it so Mm. that's really defined the culture and in truth that just runs through everything that we do like we don't have meetings and go oh we're talking to a big brand now and like we'll change the way we work I think in truth everyone who works at those more established companies really is looking for the same way of working in the same culture culture that we've created on the startup and scale-up brands. So it's taken a bit of time for it to sort of bed in. It wasn't like that at the beginning, but now every meeting and every project, every piece of work that we do, we're just doing it how we believe is the best way to do it. And that doesn't matter if you're working with a team of one or a team of 100. It's reassuring. Do your best. Do your best work. Uh, make, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. make it essential. Try and do something consequential. And hopefully that does work. I mean, well, we always say the kind of the clues in the name with other way. I think when people are challenging us, so, well, you're not like, you know, other agencies or we like to do it this way. And we'll always politely suggest that, you know, we might not have the answer all the time, but we're certainly going to try and work in slightly different ways. And I think increasingly, Big and small brands are just waking up that you've just got to do it differently. You can't Mm. just, it changes every year now and rapidly. So as the market moves, I think, you know, you've got to have a culture and an approach that's open to doing it differently and changing up a bit. And I guess something does change when you aren't the young pretender. You're still disruptive in your thinking, but you are a bit part of the furniture, certainly a decade in. Does that change the challenge when you, you know, you are, you become not establishment, but you're established? Does that mean that you, is there a different rigour or do you have to kind of sometimes, maybe it's newer recruits to the business and you have to say, look, look, don't forget, this is what we're, we're about. What's that process been like? Maybe that's kind of fun managing that or is it, is it tricky? It is fun. We're just not just studio in the US. So we're in San Francisco now and that feels like we've just gone back to day one because we have. So that feels good, but it's remembering all of the things that we did at the beginning of London. So in London, we're about 50 people now. So, I mean, it's established with a small E, but I think we've always had this sort of culture and of never finished. Um, I was going to say never happy, but I think we are. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, I know, but, I know, I know what I you think, mean. That's, yeah, like, that's how you strive. That's how you continually strive to improve, right? By not being satisfied or that helps ward off any 
complacency that might set in, for example. Yeah, and that's probably entrenched in just the people and in, in who we are. Like we're ambitious. We love the industry we're in and, and there's some great agencies and there's some great brands coming out. And, you know, we're like a lot of people who, who listen to this. Is like You look at the brands coming through and, and you look at what's being created and you see something and you're like, oh, God, that's good. <laughs> and then that pushes you to want to do better. And I think that's always been at the, sort of the heart of Other Way. I think when I started Other Way at the beginning, I was, what, late 20s. I was just out of an ad agency. I think I was a senior planner. We had no name and we had no real kind of mark on the industry. So we've always had that underdog mentality of just do good work on every brief and it will build. And I think we're lucky enough to have created some of these brands that have gone on and made their mark. And I think I think we're still living in the lucky saint era for us at the moment, of having their moment, and quite rightly so. But yeah, you, you get lots of people coming in and saying, look, we love the work you did on Lucky Saint. Can you do the same for us? So I think it's like one brief at a time, which is back to the US. Is we're, we're starting again. Well, that's interesting. And why San Francisco? Tell me, because it's, it's an interesting narrative around that over. Well, if you go back to, say, 2013, what the kind of vibe would have been like in the city, uh, what some of the challenges were, how they are now is different. Really interesting. Why, why did you feel that was the right spot? I think for us, we wanted to be on the West Coast. I think that's probably the broader answer. Is San Francisco perfect for us? It's perfect because Nick Dre, who's heading it up, we really love and we've known for a long time. He's got a similar background to us in terms of sort of advertising and design. So he sort of understands both sides of it and that's where he lives. The most important thing for us was making sure that we have a leadership team that represents us as an agency. So that's been like the key driver. I think the easier place to go is New York, but the style and the body of work that we do just felt right. It just feels more natural on the West Coast. We've got way more West Coast clients. I'd say 30% of our business now is coming from the West Coast. So, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think San Francisco is good for us now, but depending on how we do as a studio, that might broaden and we might start looking at an LA office as well. Oh, man, our US editors in Los Angeles, just just out of interest, (laughs) just throwing that into the mix. Tell me a bit about definitions. It it strikes me as funny, John, the way you talk about, you know, know, I was was a strategist, I was in the planning department here, you know, 10 years ago. You make it all seem very easy, by the way. You're very modest. And like a lot of the entrepreneurs, you say, well, and maybe we're a bit lucky as well. I think I think it's something slightly more than that. Tell me about definitions, because obviously this idea of doing these equity exchange things now, it has a bit more traction. People kind of get it. It's, mm. it's not such an outlier concept. But you're also looking at more explicitly backing and investing in companies with whom you, you partner. Does it matter how you define what you are and what you do. I don't know if you say, look, I'm still, I'm an ad man, or you're, you're also, you you know, you are an, an investor. Is that relevant, really? I don't know. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think it changes. I mean, we're currently in the process of setting up another way, which is our SEIS and EIS fund, that will allow us to directly invest behind the ideas that we see. We have great deal flow and we're into conversations really early. So, in the past, that's always been fee plus equity deals, which have been increasingly out of the US. And and a lot of entrepreneurs like doing it because they want, well, investors want to de-risk it and entrepreneurs want partners. So that's been like extremely successful for us. We've probably got 20 investments along the way in, in the last 10 years. Like all great investments, some are brilliant and some are less so. But broadly speaking, we've always looked at our portfolio and thought this is a good portfolio. And so... We're working with a, an investor who's actually an investor in Moju and BK Pets called Nick Clark, and he's coming in to head up another way. I think having that does change the conversation. So 
there's a typical client agency relationship that you can get into and that's quite defined when you're walking into a meeting with potential founders and they know that you have the ability to invest behind their business then like the conversation and tone does slightly change and that's like we've only been experiencing that over the last year or so but that's quite exciting because that does blur the definitions and that does blur the lines and I think companies like us and you know and agencies who have the ability to really make a brand successful and we're huge believers in the fact that if you get that early branding phase and positioning phase wrong you don't often get a second chance mm. so I, I like the fact that those conversations slightly change there's a potentially like a shift of power which we enjoy but I think it's sort of deserving and I think sometimes agencies get a bit of a raw deal there's a lot of great agencies out there and it's almost like oversupply and and that's sort of creating the problem I think for the industry to a degree so a a little bit more power sitting on the other side of the table I think is a good thing for the definition it's a good balance I think they're more polite about when you show them a new creative execution because they just think well we need to be a bit more constructive with this I I like the idea I like the idea of a rebalancing of that I think yeah it's funny when you're when you're partners with founders and teams and so you, you know you're in it you're presenting work that you just, I mean, we do it anyway. We don't walk into meetings and say, oh, we're, we're actually partners in this one and we're not in that one. The accountability is always there. So we're, we're really presenting work that we genuinely think is mm. going to work. And so there's no question of like, oh, are you trying to do this to win awards or have you rushed this? It's like, no, we're, we're taking this as seriously as you are. And so I think because that's always been at the heart of our business from the beginning, even from when we've got copywriters and designers working on it, it's just the way that we work. So I think that's been really to take that to bigger clients as well that you know we're not partners with and, and help transform their businesses. I think that culture has been really successful for us. Your approach is to looking at things in another way. As you said, it's, it's there, it's in, the, it's in the name. And you've also described this really mixed portfolio from early stage startups to big heritage brands and so forth. Do you have, though, at the risk of contradicting myself, is there a kind of general dream client? Like, who who do you want to hear from? What what do you love when you get maybe a casual chat or someone has a meeting, you grab a coffee with somebody? What are some typical qualities in those exchanges when you're like, this is what we're all we're all about? To generalise a little, but are there a few key indicators that these threads that run through these great relationships? Yeah, I think we talk about this a lot. The best talent want to work on brands and businesses that are doing like super interesting, meaningful things. And that's a challenge for us as a company to make sure that we are working on things that really great design talent and strategists wake up and get excited by. Because if we don't have that type of client or partner, then people move on. So as a business, we've always set out that we want to continue to work on meaningful businesses with founders doing genuinely different things that are going to make positive impact on the world. Like we're well aware that we're on a journey and there's some amazing agencies out there who are really getting after like we are just going to be you know all around making brands more sustainable and and we admire them and I think that's the journey that we want to go on we want to make sure that we're at the forefront of innovation and we want to create positive impact so what that really means is making sure and this is one reason why we're taking the US seriously is that a lot of the innovation coming out of the West Coast in particular is you know we're working on a mental health platform at the moment for a new brand we're doing a lot of stuff into gut health we had a conversation yesterday around an amazing clinician who's looking at AI technology to come into the healthcare system we're working 
with 18 Weeks Support, which is a business which is fundamentally dedicated at reducing waiting lists in NHS hospitals. So I think among, you know, I should represent the other side, you know, amongst the, you know, we've got a couple of beer brands and... <laughs> They're doing uh, good. They're doing uh, good stuff as well. Yeah. So, I'm not, so I want to represent, I want to be genuine in my answer, but we talk a lot about like, we want to design a better world. We don't just want to sell stuff. And that's, it's a big deal for us. And we're definitely um, taking it seriously. Just on that point about retention, it's funny. I remember sort of looking at reading in, I don't know, when Campaign Magazine would do agencies of the year, back way, way back in sort of 80s and in the 90s and all that stuff. You didn't read about staff churn rates there. It was all about who's got this many lines and all the rest of it. It's very different now. I don't know whether that's just a consequence of the pandemic and the change to working practice. Do you think that there's a, a change which will be enduring in terms of how agencies do recruit, retain talent? And how much does the future of work play into that? Is it changed irredeemably as a consequence of 2020-2021 or is it maybe a little too soon to say that it's 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 changed forever yeah i'd say it's actually changed before that i think in reality what their sort of advertising and design industry is losing is the startup world is gaining so i think you're getting a lot of brilliant talent just wanting to go and work directly in brands and increasingly you've got a lot of brands out there who are wanting to build in-house teams and so that i think has been tough certainly sort of the comms industry of that creative talent going directly into brands so I think that's definitely sort of one thing look there's always going to be you know my belief is like the best designers are always going to work in the best design agencies and again as you know we run an agency and we believe this it's like we're also going to be in-house teams because we have the specialism and we have the culture to do it yeah, so, but that hasn't, you know, that means you've got to be really, really good. The things that you're creating have to be sort of above and beyond what that talent might be able to go and do elsewhere. So that specialism, I think, is key to keep people in sort of agencies and, and not go, well, actually, these brands are sort of recruiting and I really love what they're doing. And I guess the third point is, yeah, the pandemic. I think it just, it's changed the way that we work certainly and I think it's changed the way that we work for the better personally um, we've got way more flexibility in what we do and there's way more trust in the people that work for us I think that's an expectation of what they want and we've always wanted to be we want to be at the forefront of that change and we're not going to fight it I think there's a lot of traditional agencies trying to fight that and get people back into the office more and and I think when you do you're just going to lose that younger talents. Um, John, look, it's lovely to speak with you. Very quickly and finally, let's say you come to see us in 12 months for your fourth appearance. What do you imagine might be on your agenda that day? The same kind of things? Do you have a longer term strategic vision that says, oh, you know, this is the big thing around the corner? What might we be talking about? We'd love to talk more about the US. You know, that's a big play for us. It doesn't always go, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. So that's kind of where a lot of our focus is at. And just increasingly doing you know, like coming back to that designing a better world, you know, being able to talk about brands either that we partnered with or invested in or bigger companies that we're changing for the better. I think that's certainly our focus for the next 12 months anyway, and we'll see from there. That was John O'Holt. You can learn more about Otherway by heading to otherway.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Simon Pollet is the co-founder of Mercury, a one-stop shop that carefully selects sustainable products and tailors them to meet the unique needs of its clients. It started out as something of a side hustle for Simon and his co-founder Benoit Fourpied, 
When a company approached the pair about personalising 50 reusable bottles in one go, the idea was born. Mercury arrived then in 2020, but like a number of businesses we featured recently, it not only survived, but thrived through the pandemic. Simon hopped on the Eurostar from Brussels for a whirlwind stopover at Midori House to talk about expanding operations internationally and how a business dependent on corporate spend did indeed make it through the unprecedented challenge of the pandemic. Here he is. In our industry, people use our products for two reasons. The first reason is as a promotional product. So you go to a trade show, you offer the product and kind of to seduce your clients or prospects. The second usage is to cheer up your team, to welcome new employees. And this second part actually survived during COVID and actually got stronger because companies were trying to cheer up their team, people were remote, companies wanted to show that the brand could be present in their home. So that's why I think in the beginning we kind of made it. (laughs) Well, yeah, and it's funny, I guess people now, even if the world's open back up, people are back at things like conferences, but maybe there's a different attitude towards merch, freebies, call them what you want. People are beginning or gone beyond just beginning to question the validity of those. And so it's a really important area to be in and more sustainable. Do you find that it's... The best projects, the most exciting projects that you work on are instigated by brands with whom you're partnering directly or still with agencies. You mentioned your agency background or actually do the most exciting projects come from all across the board? Well, first about the industry. I mean, we've all received that plastic pen or that useless USB key that we throw away after two weeks. And actually, over time, I got to learn that this industry is a giant. Every company on earth brands objects. So there is really room for improvement and there is too much crap out there that we need to stop buying. So that's our mission. Our motto is quality over quantity. So we hope that every company, whatever they are or whatever the industry, understands that. And that's really our goal. And I think that projects are better than usual because we propose better products. And that's really whatever the industry or whatever the company. Indeed, we're working with a branding and communication agencies. And there we can push a bit further the process and propose even more qualitative and even more customized products. But overall, there's no secrets. If you want to buy products that people will keep, you will have to invest more money and you will have to invest maybe in less products. So that's the secret and that's the key. And I think that's what's happening in this industry. You see that more and more employees are judging the Mm -hmm. employer if they receive a shitty merch or a shitty gift. So there's an evolution. Exactly. And that idea, again, it's something we espouse here of buying less, but buy better. And that in and of itself is a more sustainable Mm. practice. Talk to me about some specific collaborations or some specific clients that you've worked with where it really embodies all of those values that you guys set out. There are some brands that are well known for their own sustainable credentials where it must be a thrill to work with, I don't know, a Patagonia, say, who Mm. people are aware of what that brand stands for and it's kind of a perfect alignment. Do you have a few with specific moments where you guys felt this is the validation of all the things we set out to do? Well, on the product side, we come and try to convince brands to work with us and we sell their products to clients and those clients personalize the product. So it's a touchy approach. Mm. And there have been over time a few brands that we could 
convinced and I'm really proud of. One example is Patagonia. We were one of the only in Europe to work with them. And then other examples like Pangaea, Organic Basics. We got also more traditional brands like the White Lee Scissors here in England. And that is the starting point. And then we, on the other side, attract very nice brands. We could work with brands like Reformation, High Snobiety, other more traditional companies, of course, I won't lie, like big consulting firms. But we also did some merch with the Netflix TV show Sex Education. And I was really proud of that one because they were our product on the season three. And I was really happy. But that's a bit out of context. Well, no, but I think that's, that's interesting. And I always love to hear from entrepreneurs when they have those almost pinch themselves moments. Like, look, this is really, really happening. Do you do you still get those all the time? I guess your business reaches a scale if you've got a team of 25 people more, maybe now increasingly global. We'll talk about geographies in a minute. Do you still have those moments where the two of you in particular say, can you believe this is happening? Or are you now, you're so, you're so experienced, you're veterans now a few years in. Yeah, no, for sure. We have that every day because every day we do collaborations with brands. And for example, we launched an office in New York in January and my dream was to make merch for a local radio station called The Lot Radio. And recently we just produced merch with them and I was very happy about it because it's a local brand but with like a global impact. And I was really happy that our worlds could align. Well, talking about alignment, obviously our listeners are all around the world, but we have a big listener base here in the UK and they're probably wondering about Mercury on their doorstep. Talk to us a bit about the plans for geography. The US is a huge and exciting marketplace. How are you guys calibrating your plans for expansion? Well, actually, we never calibrated, to be honest. At first, we just launched from Belgium without saying that we are from Belgium so became Germany our first market. I think they love the approach. They love quality products. So that's our first market. And then the second market is the UK, even though we are operating from Europe. So we are planning on opening a UK structure here in August, which will be very exciting and will allow us to serve our clients directly from the UK. And then, of course, we opened in the US in January, which was very exciting. It's a huge market, very complex, a lot of competition and a lot of, I mean, I think they are lagging a bit behind in terms of respect and uh, quality over quantity, if you see what I mean. Our catalog is global in Europe and in the UK, so it's the same for every country. In the US, we rebuilt a whole new offer with different products. Some are the same, but we rebuilt a different catalog. To be quite honest, we have a pretty spontaneous way of building the catalog, which is just hanging out on Instagram and seeing brands we love and just thinking about whether or not we would love to receive the products. But we see indeed differences with countries and we try more and more to source products that are more local. The project is built in order to be accessible for everyone at the same time. I think one of the interesting developments, getting slightly more technical, is about how you guys are going to reflect greater dynamism in terms of the offering, the way that consumers can select, source, curate the products. I'm not a technical guy, so you have to bear with me, but in terms of what that means, in terms of front-end and back-end developing, presumably that's something that requires a great deal of resources, but there's a big upside. Talk to us a little bit about what the plans are in terms of how you can reflect that dynamism in terms of the consumer offer. For us, there are two big challenges. The first one is on the purchasing act on the website. Today, uh, most of the 
competition on our market. It's just you send an email and then you work by exchanging information, giving your logo, explaining what you want. And the direction we are taking is to building a platform where the client can basically build their product themselves with a customization tool to see the pricing in dynamic and basically order themselves as a self-service. So that's the first biggest challenge. And then the second, which we already released recently, is what happens after you purchase the products. And, you know, most of the companies that we work with, they have different offices, they have remote employees, and they just don't want to receive a pack with 200 hoodies at home and dispatch it themselves. So what we do is that we stock for them this merch, and then we dispatch it whenever they want, wherever they want, and they can do it through our app called Mercury Logistics. That was Simon Pollet, the co-founder of Mercury. To find out more, head to mercury.co. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka coming your way every Friday. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine to read more about better businesses every month. Of course, you can follow us and delve into the archive via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to contact the entrepreneur's team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur's.